Hello, everyone, and welcome back. True crime on Easy Street. Scott, mm-hmm. are you cold? It's cold I'm a little cold, there. and I'm running late today, and I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> you know, the Oak Ridge Boys said it best, trying to love two women is like a ball and chain. It is. And that's what I get with you guys. Uh-huh. Yay. Yeah. Me. You should just do it with a smile on your face. I'm smiling. Okay, good. Um, it, but the the weather is is uh, it's taken a, a quite a turn. It was 80 degrees last Sunday. Yes, when we did this. Mm-hmm. Today it's 42 something. It's cold. I mean, the doorknob on the outside of my house was cold when I tried to like pull it shut this morning. <laughs> yeah, it's cold outside. Yeah, here in Alabama, we don't understand cold, Mm-mm. and we don't really know how to function. I'm wearing a long johns top. You are. That's all I can and find. And you have a jacket too, but yeah. you don't have your jacket. I'm cold all the time. I'm cold in July. You're semi-fashionable right now, though, Scott. They call that a Henley. It is days. not on purpose. It is, and it, it's a it's it's a black. Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. you are fashionable. Black Somehow, is my color. Accidentally, <laughs> you know what that old saying is: a, a a blind squirrel will get a nut every now and then. Ta-da. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> You are fashion. Hold your applause. Yeah, absolutely. My name's Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. Okay, and we are True Crime on Easy Street. So, last week, we talked about... What did we talk about? We talked about the Clutter Family Murders. The Clutter Family Murders. And you sort of teased a few things, but I know that you're going to cover all of that this week because you've already told us that. Yes, I I was making notes last week as I was doing part one to make sure that everything I teased then gets handled today. Yeah. Even Breakfast at Tiffany's. Okay. Which I watched this morning. I always forget that Truman Capote wrote Mm -hmm. that book. It is random. It is very random. Yeah. I only associate him with In Cold Blood. It's so weird. Most people do. Yeah. Most people forget about Breakfast at Tiffany. He had other books, too. Uh-huh. How many books did he uh, have? There was uh, other voices, other rooms in 48, and then uh, there was a novella called Miriam. There's another book in there somewhere that he wrote uh, before. 48 was other voices, other rooms. So he had been a, an accomplished author for some time. Mm-hmm. And the clutter murders happened. And was this, were his other, I know Breakfast at Tiffany's not so much, but this other book, mm-hmm. did he follow the same type of, I mean, or did he do something completely different every No, time? I mean, uh, Other Voices, Other Rooms was a book about, uh, it was kind of a snapshot of his life. It was about being in the high society in New York at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone comes out as gay in the book, which is, kind which was like groundbreaking. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. similar. You know, it kind of took things from his life and, wove it into a novel. Uh-huh. Because that book came out in 48? 48, yeah. And it has someone coming out in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, uh... Well, I, I don't want to say that popular. they... I don't want to say came out necessarily, but maybe just obviously was. Okay. To his friends around him. I haven't read the book. Yeah, I'm looking at his... You know, I've, I've Googled yeah. him, and I don't, I don't recognize anything, but it is all very... You know, it's, it's older, so... And, and Truman Capote, of course, if you don't know, plays into this because he wrote the book that describes... Mm-hmm. The Clutter Murders. He he sort of launched a whole true crime. The first true crime book. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And we talked about that last week. Mm-hmm. So we will get to all of the things that were teased last week. We're going to get to those this week, Scott. Fingers Do crossed. we have any shout outs before we get started? Yes. Okay. Uh, Marion Scott 
She's okay. a friend of mine. She comes over and plays trivia at a at a place in town where we play trivia on okay. Tuesday nights. Awesome. And she did not know what a podcast was. Someone had to tell her, but she <laughs> wanted to hear about In Cold Blood because uh, she's uh, a little bit older than, than we are. And so she was familiar with the case from having read In Cold Blood years ago, and she wanted to hear our take on it. So somebody showed her how to find a podcast and she found ours and she listened to it and she's a fan now. So that's awesome. Well, thank you for listening and hello. Hello and welcome. Yes. So, all right, well let's, let's do this. I'm ready. Are you ready, Katie? I've got to be, I guess. Scott, are you, are you ready? I think so. I'm nervous today. Okay. All right. Well, let's, oh Lord, don't be nervous. I know that there's Kahlua in that coffee. Yeah, that'll help. Yeah. I got some Kahlua this morning. Okay. Cause I left the house early thinking we would get started on time. Yeah. Well we didn't. So get over it. I'm over it. Hey, how did you get Kahlua this morning? Uh, you can buy liquor in Cedar Bluff, Alabama on uh, Sundays after oh, you, 10 a.m. You purchased it this morning. I didn't steal it. Well, I mean, I didn't know if you already had it in your house. No, 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 no. No, but I should because it's gotten cold and I like coffee when it's cold. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to do this afternoon. Oh, you're going to make coffee? and coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I already made some of yesterday's coffee. What? Yeah. Don't I don't mind heat. it. I put it in the fridge. Oh. <laughs> I like cold coffee. Yeah, but like. There's Day just old cold coffee. Your daughter is nodding. Day- Katie Turner is here in the Katie, studio today. I think Katie Turner likes cold coffee, but not day old. Purposefully cold, cold coffee. Yeah. Like an iced coffee that is made properly. Correct. Correct. You guys do your thing. I will do mine. You know what? Oh That's gosh. fine. Next time you invite me over for coffee, though, I'm going to have to say, <laughs> no, you can come own. to my house. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You guys ready? I think we're ready. Okay. So if you were listening to this podcast on the day that Katie uploads it, it is November the 16th, 2022. Yes. That means that the, that yesterday was the 63rd anniversary of the Clutter murders, which took place on November the 15th, 1959. That's been, it's been, wow, that's real. I, I didn't realize it. I didn't realize that either. That's yeah. a long anniversary. I did that on purpose. I know you did. Yeah. We're, sh- we're trying to stick with things in November that actually happened in the month of November. I know. You're okay. Doing a, you're doing a Well, you forgot. Job. You just said you forgot. I did. Okay. But you, you're doing great. Keep going. All right. So um, three days later on Wednesday, November the 18th, 1959, at Valley View Cemetery in Garden City, Kansas, Nancy May Clutter, age 16, her shattered head wrapped in gauze, was buried in a red velveteen dress. It was a garment she had made herself. She cut the fabric by hand, sewed every stitch. Her friends all said it was her favorite thing to wear, so of course she was buried in it. She loved that dress so much that on the Saturday night before she died, she had laid it out to wear to church the next morning. The First Methodist Church in Garden City was practically brand new a gleaming piece of brick architecture that reflected the prosperity of that area of western Kansas. High ceilings, seating for hundreds, and beautiful stained glass placed perfectly to catch the Sunday morning sun. It was a joyous place to be most of the time. But on that Wednesday, there was no joy inside that gleaming house of God. One of the reasons Nancy's father, Herbert Clutter, had been so well-known and respected in Finney County was because he had supervised the design and construction of that impressive structure five years earlier. Herbert and Nancy and Bonnie and Kenyon were all in the church that cold November morning, each inside their black caskets, all arranged in single file behind the altar rail. Among the pallbearers that day was Nancy's boyfriend, Bobby Rupp. Two days earlier, he had been suspect number one into the investigation 
into who killed his high school sweetheart and the rest of her family. After Bobby Rupp passed a lie detector test, Agent Alvin Dewey and the rest of the men from the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, the KBI, began to look in other directions to try and solve the murders. Agent Dewey told In Cold Blood author Truman Capote that he always carried the crime scene photos with him to look at and search for clues that he might have missed when he and his investigators walked through the clutter home the Sunday morning after. One of the crime scene photos was especially helpful. It showed a distinctive bloody boot print on a piece of cardboard beneath Herbert Clutter's body, along with the faint impression of a second style of boot sole nearby, made in the dust. That footfall had not even been visible to the naked eye. Other than the boot prints, all Agent Dewey really knew for certain about the crime scene was that Herbert Clutter's binoculars were missing from his home office and Kenyon Clutter's portable radio was no longer sitting on his bedside shelf. These facts the investigators learned from the Clutter's housekeeper, who had walked through the house at Agent Dewey's request looking for anything out of place. Are you telling us only two things were missing from this house? That's right. Two things of, I mean, arguably minimal value? Mm-hmm. That's right. The lack of an early arrest in the murders had the town of Holcomb on edge, all of Finney County, really. Locals called in over 250 tips to the KBI, all either ridiculous rumors, outlandish conspiracy theories, or unfounded accusations among the neighbors. Dewey and his investigators were doing all they could, though, to try and find out who had snuck into the clutter home and shotgunned all four family members to death. Two weeks on, though, there really wasn't a lot to go on. What Dewey and his men needed was a lucky break. It came in early December when the men from the KBI sat down to interview an inmate in the Kansas State Penitentiary named Floyd Wells. Wells was a petty criminal, serving time for stealing. He told the KBI a story almost too good to be true, at least from the perspective of the lawmen trying to figure out who had killed the clutters. The tale Wells told was outlandish, unlikely, possibly even made up because of a $1,000 reward for information leading to the solution of the crime. Okay, so they think he's just coming after the reward money. It takes him a couple of days to start to take him seriously. Understandably. So Wells said he once shared a prison cell with a two-bit check chiseler named Richard Eugene Hickok. Over the course of their month-long incarceration together, before Hickok's parole, Wells had told Hickok all about Herbert Clutter and his impressive farm out in Kansas. Wells had worked at River Valley Farm a decade earlier and recalled a conversation he once overheard in which Herbert Clutter said it took around $10,000 a week to operate his farm. Somehow in the mind of Wells, 11 years and an understimulated prison-bound imagination had convinced him there was a safe somewhere in the wall of Mr. Clutter's home office, a safe where he stashed the cash required to run the farm. Even though that's not really how that works. That's right. He's not very smart. Mm. In the many retellings of that tale between Hickok and Wells, somehow that $10,000 had come to be inside that safe for certain. Just sitting there for the taking, and according to the story Wells was telling, Hickok had concocted a plan to take it. Dick Hickok's life was a wreck by the time he walked out of prison at age 28 in August of 59. He had married a 16-year-old girl a decade earlier and had kids with another woman before the ink was even dry on his marriage certificate. Hickok had been in a bad car wreck at age 19. Family members said the accident changed his appearance and his outward behavior. Following the crash, Hickok was constantly in a financial bind because his head injury made it hard to keep a job. He also liked to chase women and gamble, 
and he drank too much beer and vodka. Those latter circumstances probably affected his inability to keep a job more than the head injury. Certainly a contributing like factor, I'm guessing, yeah. Uh, and so it's not surprising that all of those things were the reason for Hickok's incarceration. He was caught stealing guns and then trying to pawn them for money. Did he have a, an injury in the front of his head? Yeah, you could see a picture before the accident and after, and his head around his left eye just looks weird. It's not, his eyes aren't quite symmetrical anymore. So that's an area of your brain that, that if it gets damaged, uh, will affect impulse control? Yeah, inhibition's not quite so mm-hmm. constricting, And perhaps. personality. Right. They say, you know, it changes the way he was acting. Yeah. And he was a different person before and after that's the, what his family the said. accident. Mm-hmm. So it obviously had some effect. But then if you're throwing alcohol on top of that, that's, you know, yeah. the perfect potion for catastrophe. So when the prison doors in Lansing, Kansas, swung wide for Hickok, he wrote a letter to Perry Edward Smith, the convict he had shared his cell with before Wells took his place on the bottom bunk. Smith had been paroled one month before Hickok, which made way for Wells to move in and tell the Herbert Clutter story. Perry Smith was short and stubby, the son of a white farmer and a full-blooded Native American mother. He was eight years old the first time he was ever arrested. By age 31, his life had become a heaping pile of poor decisions. After his alcoholic mother died from choking on her own vomit when Smith was 13, he and his brother and sisters were sent to a Catholic orphanage where Perry was beaten for insolence and bedwetting. As a young adult, he spent time in the U.S. Army in Korea, a good portion of it in the stockade for drinking and fighting. He was court-martialed once for stealing a taxi cab in Japan. He stole the whole taxi cab? Stole the taxi cab. Wow, okay. After he got home from the war, Smith bought a motorcycle and soon laid it down in a patch of sand, shattering his legs so badly that he spent six months in the hospital and never again walked without a noticeable hitch in his get-along. Hickok and Smith had become acquainted after Smith was slapped with a 12-year sentence for grand larceny. He only served three years, but when he limped out of prison a free man in July of 59, Smith was mad at the world, mentally unstable, and capable of just about anything. Mm. According to the story he told Hickok while they were in prison together, Smith had already killed a man once with a bicycle chain. Stick a pin in that. Okay, that Stick came out of nowhere, didn't it? Yeah. Goodness. Someone with no compunction for making a murder was exactly the kind of sidekick Hickok was looking for to pull off his surefire cinch of a scheme to rob the Clutter family out in West Kansas. Hickok explained all of the details in the letter he sent to Smith after Hickok got his parole, and the two arranged to meet in Kansas City in mid-November, stock up on provisions, and head for Holcomb. Of course, anyone in Holcomb could have told Hickok that Floyd Wells was horribly mistaken about that wall safe and the ten grand inside. Herbert Clutter wrote checks for practically every penny he spent, including his dollar-and-a-half haircuts. But Hickok had his heart set on that cash, which in a moment of mental apparition, he, just like Floyd Wells, had become convinced was buried behind the bookcase in Herbert Clutter's home office. They've even concocted this secret location. Mm-hmm. Wow. Desperate men. And a lot of time on their hands in yeah, jail. Right. Yeah. But, it, you know, you learn it doesn't take much for a rumor to become reality in people's minds. That's true. Not a lot at all. <laughs> From Kansas City, Hickok and Smith drove to Hickok's parents' house in Olathe, Kansas, 
grabbed a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, a flashlight, and a hunting knife, and pointed their 1949 black Chevrolet due west. It was Saturday, November the 14th, around lunchtime, when they pulled out of the driveway. On that last serene Saturday in Holcomb, while Nancy was giving a neighbor girl a trumpet lesson and Herbert and Kenyon were on their way home from that 4-H club meeting, Hickok and Smith were driving towards the darkness. There wasn't a single thing in the sky that night except for a full moon and the cold, crisp air over Kansas. 24 hours later, Hickok and Smith had returned the 400 miles to Hickok's parents' home. When they climbed out of the car, they were wealthier by this exact amount. One pair of binoculars and a monogrammed leather-bound case, one gray Zenith portable transistor radio, and $43. Holy cow. Insane. It was two days after the murders when still incarcerated Floyd Wells heard about the clutter case on a prison radio. After mulling over his options for nearly three weeks and after hearing about that cash reward from a Kansas newspaper, $1,000, Wells decided to tell his story about Hickok and Holcomb. In his interview with the KBI on December the 4th, Wells told of a plan described to him by Hickok that almost exactly matched the crime scene. There still wasn't much to go on, but at least the KBI had the names, descriptions, and rap sheets of two brand new promising suspects. After committing the murders, Hickok and Smith returned to Olathe. For a week, Hickok went about his auto mechanics job and acted normal, while Smith hid out in a local motel. Then on November the 21st, without saying goodbye to anyone, the two murderers climbed into Hickok's car and headed for Laredo, Texas. Once there, they crossed the border into Mexico. Before leaving town, Hickok had written a flurry of bad checks in and around Kansas City to generate traveling cash. After Wells told his story to the KBI, it wasn't long before those bad checks, all signed by Hickok in his own name, had given the lawmen some idea where their suspects were, or at least where they had been. The manhunt was on, and a warrant was issued for Hickok on December the 9th. According to Truman Capote, the KBI served a search warrant on Hickok's parents in Olathe the next day, December the 10th. Poor Mrs. Hickok had been waiting for some lawman or other to darken her door since Dick had disappeared on November the 21st. She told him he always ran away after he got himself into trouble. A mother knows. Right. And he'd been in trouble all of his adult life. Mm -hmm. Among the items found in that house was a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun. Not so unusual, really. But one of the agents said later that when he saw the gun in the closet, he had a feeling he was looking at the weapon that had killed the clutters. And he was right. Hmm. Meanwhile, down in Mexico, Hickok and Smith were running out of money. They had sold the car, the binoculars, and the radio. And then on December the 15th, they spent the last of their ill-gotten gains on two bus tickets back to the States, to Barstow, California. From there, following Hickok's plan, they would hitchhike east. Broke and desperate, they thumbed it as far as Iowa and then stole a car and headed back to Kansas City. Hickok wrote another batch of bad checks and the two of them drove all the way to Miami Beach where they spent Christmas on the sand. On December the 26th, they decided on a four-day drive back to Vegas, Smith's hometown, to pick up a box of belongings they had mailed to themselves before leaving Mexico. Among the items in that box, two pairs of boots. Hold that thought. On December the 30th, as Smith was returning to the car from the Las Vegas post office after picking up his package, two policemen spotted the vehicle and matched the license plate. 
They had been on the lookout because during that second check cashing spree in Kansas City, one suspicious clerk had written down the license plate number and a description of the car Hickok and Smith had driven away in. If the Vegas cops had stumbled upon those two guys ten minutes sooner, those two pairs of boots might have stayed in that Las Vegas post office forever. It was another lucky break, and this was the one that broke open the clutter case. That same evening, Dewey and his men headed west to Vegas to talk to their two new suspects. There still wasn't enough evidence for conviction, and Dewey knew that. What he desperately needed now was a willing confession from both men. But Hickok and Smith didn't have much to say to the KBI on that first day of interrogation, January the 2nd, 1960. Dewey did leave the two suspects with something to think about at the end of the day, though, and that was the fact that that day would have been Nancy Clutter's 17th birthday. Oh, bless it. On the second day of questioning, after being confronted with the boots from the package bearing Perry Smith's name and the photos of the bloody prints left in the Clutter's basement, Dick Hickok signed a full confession. Just before he fainted into the arms of his interrogators, Hickok claimed he had not killed anyone. It was all Perry Smith, he said. Fainted? Into the arms of his interrogators. Because he knew he was probably going to death row. Oh, well, could be overwhelming thought. Yeah. Yeah. Smith didn't tell his version of what happened in the clutter home until he was in the car with a KBI during the two-day drive back to Garden City. Smith intentionally placed in a separate car from Hickok for the drive back for that very purpose, to try and extract the confession. Well, yeah, you know, I wouldn't think they'd let him just hang out back there. (laughs) Right. So, Smith hadn't been convinced about Hickok's confession until Dewey asked him about the man he once killed with a bicycle chain. Oof, yeah, oof. That was a lie that Smith had told Hickok when they were in prison together to sound tough. He was wanting to, yeah. It was just brag, to borrow a term from the time. But it was that exposed bit of brag that convinced Smith that he better get his version of the clutter murders on the record. So he started talking on that long drive back to Kansas. And what he told Alvin Dewey about what happened to the clutters that night will turn you white. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. Shop Cherokee County first before you go out of town or shop online, Scott. Visit many retail businesses here in Cherokee County. And do you, you want to know why? Please tell me. Okay. They are faithful to support our local schools, our sports teams, our clubs, our community nonprofits, and more. So keeping your money here in the local economy, that's going to support all of that. Teresa and Joy do a great job at the chamber. Amazon sucks. Shop local. Absolutely agree. (laughs) Local businesses provide jobs for you and your neighbors. So brought to you by the Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce, shop local. I've seen you try to go out of town, Scott, and I'm not going to stand for it anymore. I don't trust myself to drive out of town. You better take your tail to the local shops from now on. Do you understand me? I will do a much better job of shopping locally. (laughs) Thank you for the Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce being a sponsor of the show and reminding us all to shop local. So, the Post-Herald here in Cherokee County is a uh, sponsor of True Crime on Easy Street, and we are conducting a subscription drive. What we want you to do is subscribe to the paper, because in December, when the bowl matchups come out, we're going to put an entry list in the paper, and only subscribers to the Post-Herald are eligible to win a $500 first place prize 
you pick the most bowl game winners, you get Co- 500 bucks. College football bowl games. College football bowl games. All right, so step one, subscribe to the Post-Herald. Call 256-927-4476 to subscribe to the paper for as little as $20 a year, depending on your zip code. If you're right here in town, it's 20 bucks. All right. That sounds wonderful. And welcome back to our show. Scott, continue on. You guys ready? Let's get this over with. This is the hard part. I know. Perry Smith said it was in the early morning hours of Sunday, November the 15th, when he and Dick Hickok parked their 1949 Chevy in the shadows of a row of trees near the clutter home. The night was cold. The sky was clear. The full moon made the flashlight unnecessary until they got to the house. Hickok had the knife and the flashlight. Smith was holding the shotgun. They snuck into the unlocked door of Herbert Clutter's home office to look for the money that they believed would set them both up for life. When they couldn't find the safe, because there wasn't one and never had been, they barged into the first floor bedroom and woke up Herbert Clutter, who was asleep alone. Bonnie slept upstairs in Ivana's old room. Clutter asked the two men what they wanted, to which Hickok demanded to know the location of the wall safe. There is no safe here, Mr. Clutter said. Hickok swore out in disbelief and began insisting, demanding. But Perry Smith said he knew almost immediately that Herbert Clutter was telling the truth. There was no safe and no money. Once again in his life, Perry Smith had chosen poorly. Hickok continued barking demands for money while Smith cut the lines on the two phones in the house. The convicts pushed Herbert upstairs to Bonnie's room. Shaken awake and with tears beginning to form in her eyes, Bonnie repeated what her husband had already said many times that night. There is no money here. She was crying in earnest now as she begged those two desperate men to please not hurt her children. Quickly, Kenyon was kicked awake at gunpoint. He had time to put on a pair of jeans, but not his eyeglasses. They were found the next morning, still on his nightstand. Nancy was wide awake when Hickok and Smith headed for her room. What do you fellas want, she asked. None of your business, Hickok said as he shoved her down the hallway. Mm. Hickok and Smith crammed all four clutters into the bathroom so Hickok could keep an eye on them while Smith searched the house for the safe, for money, for anything. As we already mentioned, the final haul was a radio, a pair of binoculars, and 43 bucks. Smith shuffled out to the car with their loot and then hobbled back while Hickok guarded the clutters. He had intended to rape young Nancy, he admitted later. But crippled career criminal or not, even convicted felon Perry Edward Smith put down his crooked foot at that notion. Their foolproof plan now completely come apart. The decision was made to separate the clutters. Bonnie was bound and gagged on her bed and then tied to the footboard. Nancy was bound, but not gagged, and placed in her bed with the covers pulled up to her neck. Kenyon and Herbert were herded down two flights of stairs and into the basement. Perry Smith did all the rope work that morning. He put Kenyon on a couch in the playroom, placing a pillow under his head before tying him to one of the couch arms. Herbert was dumped into the dark, dreary furnace room, where in a moment of erratic compassion, Smith laid down an empty cardboard mattress box for Herbert Clutter to lie on, to keep him off the cold concrete. Then he tied Herbert's hands and feet before wrapping tape completely around his head. Hickok and Smith... Searched some more, but found nothing worth taking. At that point in their minds, though, it was too late to leave. Hickok had insisted from the start, no witnesses. And so the killing of the clutters began. 
Perry Smith said he thought Herbert Clutter was, quote, a very nice gentleman. I thought so right up to the moment I cut his throat, unquote. That's what Perry Smith said. <clears throat> wow. In Hickok's confession, he said it was then that he heard a gurgling noise, and that was the sound of Herbert Clutter drowning in his own blood. Smith snatched the shotgun from Hickok and from point-blank range with a blinding blue flash to use Perry Smith's words, put the man out of his misery. Limping out of the darkness of the furnace room into the basement proper, Perry Smith took aim at 15-year-old Kenyon's forehead, and there was another flash of blue light. Hickok and Smith then climbed up the stairs. Nancy had not been gagged, and she screamed and begged for her life in those last few seconds. Smith hesitated just long enough for her to turn her head away from the barrel, and then he pulled the trigger. Now to the most horrific image of all. Bonnie Clutter, bound and gagged in what should be the most secure place in the world for anyone, her own bed. But instead of safety, she found herself alone in her house with two killers headed down the hallway towards her door. Considering everything that she had just heard, perhaps Bonnie Clutter welcomed their approach. One final flash of blue light and the night sky over Holcomb, Kansas, and all the clutters were gone. And then the crime scene, the nationwide manhunt while Hickok and Smith crisscrossed the country for six weeks, then the phone call from Vegas, the interrogations, the confessions, the perp walk at the Finney County Courthouse. The trial began in mid-March of 1960. It took one week to present all of the evidence. It took the jury 30 minutes to reach a verdict. Oh, yeah, I bet they didn't have a hard time with this no. one. Mm-mm. Probably just enough time to write all their names down. Yeah. So Hickok was, was telling the truth when he said Perry was the one who actually That's killed right. everyone. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, I, I didn't see that coming. I thought that was going to be reversed. No. Perry initially told the story that he killed the two men and Hickok killed the two women. But he eventually said, I didn't want Hickok's mother to think that he killed those people when I actually did it. So I confessed to the truth. They both admitted eventually that that was how it happened. It's so funny how he tries to coat all of this in what I guess he believes is his own version of compassion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Put him out of his misery. Are you buying any of that? I don't know. Complicated. Yeah. Capote did. Capote did. Yeah. Scottish philosopher Adam Smith once wrote, mercy to the guilty is cruelty to the innocent. And there had already been enough cruelty in Holcomb, so that 12-man jury decided there would be no mercy for Hickok and Smith. That is a great line. Yeah. Mm. I stumbled across that on Facebook. Two days ago. Uh, Hickok and Smith guilty on all four counts and their sentence with Hickok and Smith were found guilty on all four counts. The sentence was death by hanging. That tells you how old this case is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When did we stop hanging people? Uh, Smith and Hickok were among the last two people to be executed by hanging in Kansas. They switched to, uh, Lethal injection, I think, and then 72, the Supreme Court outlawed the death penalty for everybody three or four years. Yeah. And that's yeah. when um, hanging stopped. Yeah, 1972. It was, it was technically legal up until 1972. Wow. Mm-hmm. You don't think, you think the Wild West and you think, you know, hang, hangings, you know, being an early 1900s mm-hmm. or even a late 1800s 
kind of Dodge thing. City is not far from Holcomb, so it was the Wild West. Oh my goodness. Or at least it had been. Yeah. yeah. For the next five years, as the appeals process dragged on, Death Row was a dreary place for Hickok and Smith. Good. And their yeah, separate Death Row shouldn't be a fun-filled place. Yeah. yeah. No, it shouldn't be it shouldn't fun. be Disney World. In their separate seven by ten foot cells, Hickok read law books and wrote letters pleading to have his sentence overturned because remember, technically he hadn't killed anyone. Yeah, but he didn't stop yeah. it. it. He was there. He, he was, was right there. along for if the If you're ride. there, it's murder. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, that's the law. I'm not a lawyer, but <laughs> I think it's something like that. Uh I'm just gonna say this. I don't care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't oh care. yeah, me either. No one was holding a gun to his head either. Right. That's true. No. And uh, he, he, he didn't say that. He didn't say, I participated because I was afraid. Nope. No, he says, I, was, I even thought about raping the 16-year-old. Now, this is a desperation move on his part. So he's just writing to yeah. the judge, to his lawyers, hoping to have his death sentence mm-hmm. uh, overturned. Yeah. Uh, Smith spent most of his time, uh, he was artistically inclined, so he did charcoal drawings of the children of the guards. They would oh. bring photos of their children and he would do charcoal drawings. And I can't imagine I, taking a photo of my child to someone on death row. I thought you meant the clutter children to begin with. And I, no, was, no, no. I was about to say that as messed up he as made it friends is with anyway. the guards there. I mean, they were there for five years. They were, that was know, Perry. That was Smith. Perry. Right. Okay. I can't imagine taking <sighs> pictures. I'm going to say it again of my children to someone on death row. You don't want Katie Turner drawn by, a murder? I would. I would prefer not. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. definitely. Probably not to have her face in his mind. No, not yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Come on, people. Really? Ugh. I guess that's bothering me more than than any. I mean, is it? Is that weird to y'all? Uh, I was weird. You know, I always choose the one. There's detail. nothing else for them to do. I always choose the one detail to get a little sideways on and and get confused. She's getting sideways. This is my detail. What I don't. Gosh, I just don't understand that. So from their tiny windows in their cells, Hickok and Smith could see the old warehouse in the corner of the prison yard that housed the state's official method of execution at the time, an unpainted wooden gallows that Truman Capote wrote smelled faintly of pine. So they hung them from gallows, not like a tree. You know, you hear the old... Yeah, they had a gallows in the, in the warehouse. That it was smelled... called... When you went to the corner in Kansas, that meant you had been executed. That smelled like pine. Mm-hmm. Like a Christmas tree. Yep. Mm. And Capote knew that scent for certain because he was in that warehouse on the night that Hickok and Smith were hanged by the neck until they were dead for what they did to the clutters. So, I mean, you witness that just like you do lethal injection now. Mm-hmm. They've always had um, public or sort of yeah, semi-public yeah. execution. Uh, he was there at the request of Smith and Hickok. They had both written and asked him to come to be there. I don't, I don't know if I could watch an execution, especially a hanging. Well, it turns out Capote couldn't either. Mm-hmm. Well, and he had gotten to know these men pretty mm-hmm. well. Uh, uh, Perry especially. That's right. Yeah. Uh, during their time on death row, Hickok and Smith, but mostly Smith, as Kelly just said, uh, had been interviewed multiple times by Capote. They'd both written to him often. Remember, Capote couldn't finish In Cold Blood until he had his ending, and that meant Hickok and Smith with nooses around their necks and no floor beneath their feet. So Capote wrote back to them. He got to know them. He befriended them, like you were saying. Capote stood by the gallows that black morning, shortly after midnight, a witness to his two friends' executions. 
It was storming terribly that early morning on April the 14th, 1965, when the jailers brought Hickok and Smith into the warehouse. There were 13 steps up to the top of those gallows, Katie. Their hands were shackled to their waists so their arms wouldn't flail in the air when the executioner pulled the lever to release the trap door. Capote watched Hickok hang, but he stepped outside into the driving rain before Perry Smith took his last crooked step. His ideal ending now grudgingly secured, Capote wiped away his tears and then traveled to Spain to complete his masterpiece. He had made a Faustian bargain, the death of two people that he had come to consider close friends in exchange for the perfect ending and fame and fortune. Capote would make millions from In Cold Blood and he would come to regret it. Is it a controversial take to think that it's really messed up that he befriended these people? Well, the guards did too. No, he, he Capote has caught a lot of criticism over the years for this. Okay, because I'm over here just... And I don't know. It makes a better story, though. Yeah. I don't know what Harper Lee thought about it. Uh, I know that in some of the movies that you watch, you know, she's kind of calling him out on on a lot of this. Mm -hmm. And he gets called out for, you know, taking it easy on on them because he's, he's, you know, befriended them. Why in the world would you befriend a, you know. Yeah. If he was my friend, he'd be called out. Yeah. Because I'm just, I've just got the ick all over over here. Yeah, I think Harper Lee did too for a time. Mm-hmm. So, like Kelly, like you just mentioned, there are people who uh, don't like the literary liberties Capote took in a few places in the book, and I'm going to talk about a couple of those. Uh, but you have to understand, and I'm not making excuses, but he was essentially creating a new form of writing, the nonfiction novel, he called it. And there were really no hard and fast rules at the time regarding exactly what was acceptable and what was not with this new genre. One example... Uh, The Clutter family always disputed Capote's description of Bonnie Clutter. She seemed, in the book at least, to have emotional issues. She came off sounding depressed and did not sleep with her husband. That was all factual. Uh, The rest of the Clutter family said that Capote's description was not the Aunt Bonnie that they knew, but it seems pretty well documented in the book. It's mentioned several times. We will let the reader decide. As we've already pointed out, Agent Dewey did allow Capote access to materials that other journalists were not allowed to see, but there was a good reason for that, at least in Dewey's mind. Those other journalists were writing on deadline, trying to tell the story in their newspapers in real time. That could have been damaging to the investigation. Capote, from day one, kept his word not to write anything about the crime or its aftermath until it was all over, and he never broke that promise. In cold blood, was not published until several months after Hickok and Smith had been hanged and buried. There was one bit of fiction. At the very end of the book, Capote always admitted this. It was meant to serve as an allegory, to signify Alvin Dewey's realization that he had done his job, he had solved the murders, and now he could go on with his life. In the final pages, a woman from town meets Alvin Dewey by chance at Valley View Cemetery in Garden City, and the two of them have a short conversation about life in the area in the four years since the Clutter murders. They are standing near the Clutter's headstones as they have this conversation. The woman had once been a classmate of Nancy Clutter's, now all grown up. After she walks away from their brief encounter, Dewey finds himself thinking of Nancy and what a fine woman she would have become. And then Agent Dewey turns to walk home. Capote closed out his opus this way. He walked towards the trees and under them, leaving behind him the big sky the whisper of wind voices on the wind-bent wheat. 
As for Truman Capote, he never really moved on with his life. He never finished another book. Instead, he became a bit of a social buffoon in his final 20 years, blabbering away drunkenly on TV talk shows, attending boozy parties in Manhattan, appearing in a 1976 murder mystery parody film as an over-the-top version of himself. Now pause for just a second and imagine what that looks like. I sent you the picture last night. Yep, I've Mm -hmm. seen it. Capote died on August the 25th, 1984, from the effects of alcoholism and drug use. He was 59. Young. Very young. Sounds young to me. I'm 52. (laughs) There is one bit of light, perhaps, at the very end of this dark tunnel of a tale. At the very least, Herbert and Bonnie and Nancy and Kenyon have not been forgotten by the people of Holcomb. Last week, I called the town hall there and spoke with a very friendly lady named Erica. And she told me this. You guys remember Bobby Rupp, Nancy's boyfriend? Yes. yes. He is Mr. Rupp now, around 80, I imagine. A few years ago, he was instrumental in urging the Holcomb Town Council to construct a large brick and marble monument in remembrance of the clutters in the town's community park. Erected in 2010, the monument stands five feet tall. It is as big as a refrigerator, and it is designed to withstand a tornado. It is Kansas. Erica told me that to this very day, Mr. Rupp is alive and well and remains the person primarily responsible for the weekly upkeep of the Clutter Memorial Monument. Anybody listening out there, if you want to borrow my copy of In Cold Blood, you can. That's fine, but I want it back when you're finished because I will read it again. It is one of my favorite books of all time. And if reading is not your thing, there's a 1967 film titled In Cold Blood. It's based on the book that you can watch for $3.99 on Amazon Prime. Four stars out of five. Pretty good film. It's haunting, but it's very well done. Seven years after the crime, a lot of the scenes in that film were shot on location in Holcomb and Garden City. Capote insisted on it. He was like an executive producer. Uh, the murder scenes were shot in the Clutter House. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this is not long after... Crime, it was shot in 66 I mean, and came out in 67, that, so it's not that long. seven after. years later. And it took five years for uh, them to be executed, right? That's right. And it, so it was just not long after they were executed. That's yeah. actually pretty quick execution. They were executed in April of 65, and In Cold Blood came out serialized in four parts in The New Yorker in late 65, and then the book was published in January of 66. So the movie started right after the book was published. That same summer, they started filming the movie with Robert Blake as Perry Smith. Now, I guess in the 60s, back then, though, they didn't just let people sit on death row like they do now, I guess. Mm -hmm. Robert Blake, that name sounds familiar. Does he have his own issues? Yeah, he was uh, acquitted for murdering his wife 15 or 20 years ago. Okay. Okay. He was in a cop show called Beretta back in the day. He had a parrot for a companion. Mm-hmm. That was his shtick. You know, everybody had shtick. I mean, uh, Telly Savalas had his lollipop, who loves you, baby. Are you saying in the show he had a parrot for a companion? That's right. Okay, yeah. not in real life. I was about well, to say, maybe. And his wife should have read the writing on the wall. Maybe it was just his bird, and he brought it to work, and they said, hey, bring it on. Oh, I God. I don't know. But he was acquitted for that. Yes. Oh, so he correct. didn't actually murder. Well, I don't know if he did or not, but he, they didn't have enough evidence to convict him, at least. Yeah. And then the last thing on my list that we had to mention today, I told you guys last week, I was going to watch Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yes. Based on the Capote book. And I did this morning. And? I don't know. I, I, I think what I enjoyed most about it was just seeing uh, New York City mm. in 1960. The movie came out mm. in 61. 
So New York City was just a, a very different place. There's one scene where they go into the library because her friend is, uh, I think his name is Fred in the film. It's, uh, uh, it's George Pappard. You guys know him as the white-haired guy on the A-Team from yes. the 80s cop show or whatever they were, uh, mercenaries. But there's a scene where they go into the library and they're going to try to find his, he's had a book published, so they want to find it at the library. And they have to go into the card catalog room, which is as big as a Walmart. <laughs> to find the cards. This is before computers, so they have to find, Especially they have to the go into the, the Dewey Decimal System and find the book and go, and, and they don't even, in the New York City Public Library, you don't go find it on the shelf. You give the librarian the card that you want you to gotta, read. They'll go find the it for catalog, you, yeah. and you get a number like going to the bakery. And <laughs> that scene is in the film. So that's that was so, that's very so different. odd in today's world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just don't. Yeah, if you watch that and you didn't, Learn the Dewey Decimal System in high school, like like you and I did. Yes. Did you learn the Dewey Decimal System? We went through the through it in like elementary school. Yeah, and that would have so been, you can use the library. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. but I mean, it would have been when I was in kindergarten. You got on a computer, and it was the old mm-hmm. computers, and then technology. I mean, in my school age, developed rapidly. So yeah. I'm just at that perfect age to where it went away very quickly. I think I was a junior, maybe a sophomore in high school. The first time we had a computer lab with Commodore 64 computers that, you know, no graphics. You just typed in words and... Did you play Oregon Trail? Yes. Yeah. And there was this game called Concession Stand where you, you know, <laughs> you, you, you determine the price of hot dogs and coffee and they tell you what the weather's going to be and you try to make money and you just punch in some numbers and it generates for something. Hey, you made 40 bucks. <laughs> I spent a Yay! lot... Yay! Of- <laughs> that was the height of luxury. I spent a lot of time in the school library. I was very... You know, we yeah. I was there when we had like AR. I don't know if that was a concept back no we did not have accelerated reading nope i read a i mean you earned points and you know you won so i was always like i've got to okay you know, yeah you turn up. it into a competition yes. that makes some people yes. that motivates some folks mm-hmm. yes uh katie turner did you guys learn the dewey decimal system at all in school she's shaking her head no. she has yeah. no idea what we're talking yeah. about katie turner is 17 so that yeah. gives you an idea of about yeah. when they stopped probably your class katie givens and probably like i said in <laughs> high school we didn't go over it anymore but elementary like when you're first learning about the library and you're doing all that i remember there being cards in a system but i don't mm-hmm. it wasn't driven. anyway that was the scene that jumped out at me from uh Breakfast at Tiffany's. I love. I, I understand what you're saying about the the New York, the scene there, and yeah. the fact. A lot of it was shot. You know, you could tell most of it was not on a set. Uh, mm-hmm. The exterior scenes. Mm-hmm. And they're walking down Times Square, and just to see the difference in Times Square then. And you know, it's been ten years since I've been to New York, but you see it on television all the time. So just very different. And I the, do love the fashion that. and the hair. Yeah, and the, all, yeah it was she was great. very fashionable, yes. Audrey Hepburn. And yes. every, every time she stepped out of the house, she was wearing a different hat. I think when you see pictures of Audrey Hepburn, it's that iconic movie. You yeah, probably have, see those first, or you probably think about those first, mm-hmm. and you realize, oh, that's a that's a, a photo from Breakfast at Tiffany's. I, I would say, yeah, yeah. the black dress. Mm-hmm. And her hair's done a certain way. Yeah, it's up and, and the yeah. pearls yeah. and mm-hmm. the, the pearls. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, guys. I'm glad we're through with the clutter case. I bet you are. That was, that was a tough one, but you did a fantastic ugh. job, Scott. A little nervous today. Thank you so much for that. Uh, we all learned something new today. Did we, I lip smack? You did not. And we were we remember our Alabama tie. Truman Capote actually spent a lot of his uh, summers here in yeah. Mon- uh, Monroeville. In Monroeville, Alabama with Harper Lee. 
so which is just crazy. And if you know, we strange. I think we touched on that a little bit too back when we went over the Reverend. We did. So if y'all remember yep. that, that's we right. Did. Because, uh, and again, we've said this, but I'm going to say it again because I love the I love this story. Um, Harper Lee's true crime novel would have been about the Reverend mm-hmm. if she could have taken com- the liberties, completed the story. But she was. 100% against taking any liberties that Capote did so that's right. she didn't finish it but I'd love that to read now that that's controversial yeah. some people say she did finish it some people say yeah. she didn't but we've not seen anything that's right. as of yet it hasn't turned up yet yeah uh, guys don't forget to jump on to uh, whatever podcast platform you use I guess Apple iTunes give us a five star review leave your name we'll give you a shout out in an upcoming episode of the show if you got an idea for something I love I've, I'm getting all kinds of Ideas from different folks on Facebook Messenger, from texts. Mm-hmm. Um, Fire away. We love it. Oh, yeah. I've added a lot of those. I've added to the list. If I didn't add it to the list, it's because it was already on our list. Mm. So We've got a pretty good long list there. We do. Yeah. We do. Plenty season, of material. Season three is going to be even better. Even we're, we're better. We're getting geared up for that beginning in January. So It'll be here before we know it. Yep. I know. Go visit us at truecrimeoneasystreet.com. Good night, everybody. <laughs>